As we continue our series in this book of Ephesians, the title of the series is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. We are in the second to the last chapter now of this six-chapter book. It's still going to take us several weeks to get to the end, but this has been a many months long journey now, looking at the theme of the book of Ephesians, Your Place, where you fit into God's grand eternal plan in His world. We have seen that God tells us about His work and His plan and the execution of that plan in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world, God chose to bring us to Jesus Christ. And in the counsels of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was an agreement as to how this plan of salvation, this rescue mission, would be carried out. The Son would come to die for our sins, and the Holy Spirit would apply the work of the Son to those whom the Father has chosen before time began. And we would be given His Holy Spirit, as the Bible says, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in the future. Chapter 2 tells us how in time that happened, that we were saved, we were rescued, we were delivered by grace through faith. Not anything that we have done, not by works, so that none of us can boast before God. Chapter 3 tells us that this God who has saved us, rescued us, delivered us, has placed us into the agent, agency, the institution by which he's carrying out his work in his world, the church. And chapter 3 ends with this line, to him be glory in the church. Now that's who you are. If you've come to God through Jesus Christ, you've been rescued, you've been delivered by His mercy, by His grace. Because of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross, you've been adopted, we're told, into His family. You are now sons and daughters of God, no longer sons and daughters of disobedience, as chapter 2 tells us at one time all of us were. And now we come then to chapter 4, and chapter 4 says, in light of all of those glorious truths, Live in a way that's worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And when it says to live worthy, it doesn't mean that I can make myself worthy of all of this that God has done or any of this that God has done. But it means to live consistent now with who you are in Jesus Christ. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are going to tell us what a life that's consistent with our calling looks like. And so from verse 1 all the way down through verse 16, we're told that a life that is consistent with the calling that we've received from Christ is a life that's lived in unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 4 and verse 17 through verse 24, we're told it's a, a life of holiness, a life that's different than the lives that are lived by those who have not come to God through Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 4, we see what that kind of life looks like. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the kind of external behavior that characterizes those who have come to God through Christ. The passage uses the words put on and put off, that you wear, as it were, clothing that's consistent with the character that you now have through Jesus Christ. We've seen that that clothing includes the six things that are on your outline. I encourage you to take that out and remind you, be reminded. 
that the new you, as we've seen, who dresses for success, wears these six things. Truth and peace and generosity and grace and love and purity. And all of this is is done because, as we saw last week, this is what is proper for God's holy, different, set-apart people. Chapter 5 and verse 3 that we saw last week says you don't engage in sexual immorality. You don't engage in impurity. We don't engage in, in greed. And we don't do these things because these are improper. The end of verse 3 of chapter 5, they're improper for God's holy people. Actually, literally, verse 3 says that it is proper among the saints. That's actually what it says. It's proper among the saints that we do not engage in those things. And you're called a saint. The NIV says God's holy people. Saints are not, contrary to popular understanding, a special class of people who go through a system of canonization and rise to the top of the heap, as it were. The saints are all of those who have been called out of the world and to God through Jesus Christ. That includes me. That includes you. And the behavior that's described then in chapter 5 is the behavior that is consistent and proper for God's holy people. You and I have been called to a different life. And the Bible has taken pains now to describe for us what that life looks like. We've seen then what Christian behavior looks like. But that raises the question, why should I pursue the Christian life. We've seen what the Christian life looks like, but why should a Christian pursue that life? And the next 17 verses, chapter 5 and verse 5, through verse 21, give four reasons why you should pursue the life that's described in the prior verses. We're going to see those four reasons over the next few weeks. Today we're going to look at the first two of those four. I have four lines listed for you in your outline. We're going to see the first two. This is part one. You see up at the top? Reasons for righteousness, part one. And then we'll see reasons for righteousness, parts two, and perhaps part three. So why should a Christian pursue a lifestyle that's consistent with his calling? One commentator has said, all employers know the importance of incentives. They ask themselves, how can workers be persuaded to work harder and better and thereby increase productivity or sales? And so all kinds of inducement are offered in the form of higher wages, more attractive working conditions, bonuses, holidays, recreational and educational facilities, and then retirement and pension prospects. That used to be the deal. But the best incentives are neither material nor selfish. Wise employers seek to give their workforce a heightened interest in their job, a greater loyalty to the firm, a feeling of pride in what they're making or selling. And all of this, he says, bears witness to the nature of men and women made in God's image, who in addition to a job, need reasons for doing it. Ideals to inspire them and a sense of creative fulfillment. Not surprisingly then, the Bible which gives us this teaching of mankind made in the image of God is concerned not only with obligation, but with motivation. 
People know what they ought to do. And the question is, how can they be motivated to do it? We have seen what we ought to do, what a Christian life ought to look like. But how now can we be motivated to actually pursue that Christian life? And these four reasons are given in order to motivate us. We should pursue a wholly different lifestyle, I say in your outline, because unholiness will be judged in the future. Unholiness will be judged in the future. Verse 5 of chapter 5. For, now notice the word for. So it's saying here's why. You should do the stuff that precedes. For, because, of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And this is consistent with what the Bible says elsewhere. You may be familiar with these words from another book in your Bible. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The three vices that are given in our passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5, those three vices of immorality, it's, it's literally sexual immorality, porneia that we saw from verse 3 of last week, or greed or, or impurity or of greed, which is idolatry. All three of those are listed in Galatians chapter 5 as behaviors that flow from the sin nature just before we're given the famous fruit of the Spirit. Here's what the Bible says. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Now notice, sexual immorality. Same thing as Ephesians 5. Debauchery, impurity, same thing as Ephesians 5. Idolatry, Ephesians 5. Witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, notice, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sobering to read and be reminded of, is it not? And why are there in Scripture all of these commands and warnings? And just a cursory reading through your Bible, you find these commands to do certain things and avoid certain other things and warnings regarding the consequences of failure to do or avoid. And why are there all of these when, after all, this very letter says in chapter 1 that if I've come to Jesus Christ, it's because I've been chosen from before the foundation of the world. And it also says, I have the Holy Spirit, who according to chapter 1 and verse 14, is this deposit guaranteeing my inheritance in heaven. Chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. 
And so I've been given this new nature, a natural outflow of which is for me to do these good works which God prepared in advance to do, for me to do. And so if you've come to God through Jesus, your safe arrival in heaven is inevitable. But hear this. It's inevitable, but it's not automatic. Your safe arrival in heaven is inevitable, but it's not automatic. Now, what do I mean by that? Between right now and our guaranteed destination in heaven in the future is our active participation in the work God is doing to make us like Jesus. And he is doing a work in us and on us, but he calls us, he demands, in fact, that we cooperate in that work. It is not passive. It is not autopilot. And so think of it this way. God knows exactly how many days, how many hours, minutes, and seconds you're going to live on this earth. The Bible teaches death is an appointment that all of us have on God's calendar. But although our reaching that date is inevitable, it's going to happen. It's not automatic because between now and then we participate in a process of living and growing and suffering and learning. It is inevitable, that is, it's guaranteed that we're going to reach heaven if we've come to Christ. But getting there includes a process of learning and living and falling and repenting and growing. And that's why there are so many warnings and commands in the Bible, even to people who are Christians. Even for those for whom heaven is our guaranteed destination, the warnings and the commands, now hear this, are the means by which God is reminding us and convicting us and calling us back. And those who have been transformed from goats to sheep, Hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. But make no mistake, the Bible is very clear. If we continue in a pattern of behavior that is characteristic not of God's children, but of those whose nature is to sin, then we are not Christians, whatever our profession may be. This is what we're being told in Ephesians 5.5. 5. No one who does these things as the characteristic of their life has an inheritance in heaven with Christ. At the end of verse 6 of Ephesians 5, it refers to those who do these things as, notice the phrase, those who are disobedient. But the phrase is literally, the sons of disobedience do these things characteristically and regularly. It's saying if we continue the pra to practice the things listed in verse 5, then we show ourselves to be not sons and daughters of God, but sons and daughters of disobedience. You see, dear friend, there is a difference between profession and possession. I may profess that I know Christ, but that does not mean that I possess. The behavior that's being addressed is 
immoral, verse 5. The, neither, the immoral, it says, porneia, those who engage regularly in sexual sin. Or the impure, it says, as we saw from verse 3 last week. That's the negative form of the word from which we get the English catharsis, a cleansing, a, a purifying. But it's those who don't have that cleansing, who don't have the filter of the Holy Spirit, the blood of Christ, and so are impure. And the greedy, that is the covetous, which in verse 5 is called idolatry. And why is it called idolatry? Because we make a God out of the thing or person that we covet. Or to put it another way, we make an idol out of the thing or person we want. And so verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient, or the sons of disobedience. Now what kinds of empty words might deceive us into thinking, it's okay to live that way and to still believe that I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven? Well, it would be empty words like, God would not send anyone to hell. And we have lots of people who are teaching and saying those very kinds of things. God, a loving God, would not send anyone to hell. Empty words like the so-called pastor of a mega, mega church in Grand Rapids, who earlier this year or last year, I can't remember, wrote a book called Love Wins, in which he denies the certainty of eternal punishment for those outside of Christ. But friends, the Bible doesn't teach love wins. The Bible teaches God wins. And God is love, and God is holy. And God's love and God's holiness will win. And so what is the answer then to this? Verse 7 says of chapter 5, Therefore, you all see it? Therefore, do not be partners with them. And the word that's translated partners means do not participate with those whose lives are characterized by the things described in, chat, in verse 3 and 4 and now 5 and 6. Do not participate with them. Do not cooperate with them. And I want you to note, we're going to see in a little bit, that we're to stay away from the kinds of things that are done by those who have not come to Christ. But here it's saying, do not partner with them, not it. There is a very real sense that the Bible teaches that we are to be extremely careful about those we choose to associate with. Lest in the vestiges of sin that all of us still have this side of heaven, we be tempted to participate in the works of darkness. Do not be partners with them. Now, listen, friends. I know that everything I've just said is not a pick-me-up, feel-good message. And if you can figure out a way to look at Ephesians 5, verses 5, 6, and 7, and make that a feel-good message, let me know. 
But if you're going to be true to what God has said, which is what we're about, then you say what God says the way God has said it. So I know that. And I want to offer for you, as, as the Bible does, and as we will in the latter half of our time, some hope and a positive reflection on what it means to live for Christ. But I want you to understand that for any of us here, no matter what it is we're engaged in, there is hope for us. Because I quoted for you earlier 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that says, Do you not know that, and then describes all these people, will not inherit the kingdom. But then it goes on to say this. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But you might say, you know, I have done some or even many of the things that are listed in those, given in those lists. Even after I've come to Christ as my Savior, does that mean I'm not going to heaven? It does not mean that you never do those things. It does mean that you don't practice them as the characteristic of your life. The Bible says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Notice how many times it says, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning as the pattern of life because he has been born of God. Now there's hope for all of us, as I said. Those of us who have come to Jesus Christ are being called by the warning that God has issued to come back to him and repent of any of the things we may be engaged in right now that fitted, fit the pattern of what we've read. For those who have never come to God through Jesus Christ, perhaps you're realizing that for the first time right now. That I prayed a prayer way back then and there has never been a change in my life and in fact, I don't look much or if at all different from the world. What that means is you've never been born again. But you can come to God through Christ right now. So with that sobering warning, here's what I would like to do. I would like for us to, in the middle of our time, to stop and pray. And I would like for each of us to consider our walk with God and whether it is a walk that is consistent, worthy of the calling we've received. Whether our lives reflect that which is fitting for God's holy people, God's saints to reflect as to whether or not I've ever actually been changed from the inside out by the cleansing that Jesus Christ alone can give. That cleansing is provided by His blood, shed on the cross for you and for me to cover all of our sin, past, present, and future, thanks be to God. Doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid that price. That price 
is applied to you when you come to Him believing that you can do nothing for yourself, that God has come to do what you couldn't. His price, paying the penalty for your sin, is applied to you in full. He gives you His Holy Spirit, and He begins to change you from the inside out. And you can do that in this sacred moment. And so those of us who have come to Christ, let's take a moment to consider our walk with Christ. And those who have never come to Him, I invite you to come to Him right now. Receiving the gift that He offers by the work that He has done, by His absolutely perfect life and His death on the cross. You can pray from your heart to God right now. I realize who I am. I realize I've sinned against you. I realize I can do nothing. I realize that Jesus has done for me all that I need. I ask you to apply what he's done to me. I want to follow you with my life. He'll begin to change you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the solemn commands and warnings that you've given us in your word. Father, I need those warnings, and you know that I need them. That's why you've given them. To show me the characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To remind me and us of what the traits are of those who have never come to Jesus. So that I can look at and be reminded from where I have come and what you have delivered, rescued, saved me from. And be reminded when, not if I sin, when I sin. That this is not what a child of obedience does. And that I have an advocate with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads my case before, before the Father regularly because of his blood shed for me. And so, Lord, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me to cleanse me. And I ask you, Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, that you would do a work right now in their hearts, causing them to reflect on their walk with you and all that's been done for us and how we're living before you. I pray that confession is taking place, and that you promise that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and you are just, and you will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray for anyone who came into this room but did not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that they are calling out from their heart to you right now. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask you, we humbly ask you to move upon the hearts of those who are outside the family of God and bring them into your family in this sacred moment. I pray that for many in this room. This might be the first step in a new direction, a radically new direction in their lives. And thereby, Lord, we will thank you. We will praise you for giving us these warnings. Hurtful though they be, they are wounds that are designed to heal. Thank you for the healing that's provided through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We should pursue a holy, different lifestyle because unholiness will be judged in the future. But secondly, in your outline, we should pursue a wholly different lifestyle because holiness 
will be rewarded now. Holiness will be rewarded now. I didn't uh, give you the rest of the verse when I read it earlier, did I? There it is. I was telling you the truth. That's really what it says. Holiness will be rewarded now. Do you all remember that on one occasion in the Gospels, the first four books of your New Testament that describe Jesus' life on earth, that in one of those four, the book of John, is described an incident where Jesus said these words, I am the light of the world. What you may not know is when Jesus said those words. He did this at the end of something called the Feast of Tabernacles. On the day after the spectacular nighttime ceremony known as the illumination of the temple. And for that celebration, there were four massive candelabras. And those massive candelabras were, top, were topped with huge torches on them. They were as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And at the top of them were mounted large bowls to hold about 20 gallons of oil. There was a ladder for each one, and on that evening, young healthy priests would climb up and they would light the wicks that protruded out of the bowls. Eyewitnesses said the flames would illuminate not only the temple but all of Jerusalem. A Jewish document called the Mishnah says a great celebration took place in the glow of those torches. It was a celebration that commemorated the great pillar of fire. You all remember that from the first part of your Bible? The pillar of fire that led God's people in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and were going to the promised land. This was a celebration commemorating that great pillar of fire the glorious cloud of God's presence with His people that led them through the wilderness and it spread its fiery billows over the tabernacle. And it was after that ceremony and in the same location in the temple where that ceremony took place that on the following morning with the charred torches still in place Jesus lifted His voice above the crowd and He proclaimed, I am the light of the world. And in saying that, Jesus was saying, in effect, that that pillar of fire that came between you, God's chosen people, and the Egyptians 1,500 years ago, and that glorious cloud that filled the temple, that was me. I'm the light of the world. And he goes on to say this. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world, and then he's connecting the light that he is to us. And in verse 8 of Ephesians 5, notice what it says. You were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Now notice, it's not you used to be in darkness and you're now in the light. It says this, you are light in the Lord. It is saying 
that we have become light ourselves. Now, light in the Bible has an intellectual and a moral component to it. It has this intellectual component because the Bible teaches that prior to coming to Christ, our minds are, are blinded. And so God has to, by His Spirit, turn the light on, as it were. We call that, in fact, something called illumination. He turns the light on. So that what we were blind to, we now see. The Bible says in Psalms, In thy light we see light. It's only in, in thy light and in our relationship with the one who is light that we now see clearly. There's an intellectual component, but there's also a moral component. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so there's this moral component such that light now lives in a way that's consistent with the purity of the light that God is. And we are then said to be light because we're united to Christ and so we become like Him. Here's what the Bible says incredibly. We participate in the divine nature. Yikes. Friends, just as one, as one preacher says, just pause and wonder. <laughs> that those of us, all of us, who at one time were sons and daughters of disobedience, and thus, sons and daughters of darkness are now light. We are light because of our relationship to God through Jesus. And the end of verse 8 says this then in Ephesians 5. Live then as children of light. Notice again the theme. You're in a new family with a new nature so now reflect the nature of that new family. Live as children of light, no longer as sons and daughters of disobedience and of darkness. Live as children of light. And then it tells us what the characteristics of the children of light look like. Live as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now I say in your outline that here's a motivation for living the way the Bible describes. It's because holiness will be rewarded now. And the reason I say that is because of that verse. Verse 9 says the fruit then of light and, and living consistent with the light is for us to demonstrate and experience goodness and righteousness and truth. What's good, what's right, and what's true. To use the words of Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it tells us that we're to not be conformed to this world any longer, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and then we will be able to test and approve what the Lord's will is his and then it says this his good and pleasing and perfect will and what we're being told here is this in verse 9 that as we live as children of light that life of light is good and it's right 
And it's true. And as a result of doing that, verse 10, we will find out, literally we will learn, what the Lord's will is. I ask you this. Do you demonstrate in the way you live as a professing Christian that living for Jesus Christ is good? That, in the words of Romans 12, it's pleasing. That, to put it another way, this is the best kind of life to live. Friends, the Christian walk and living as children of light is the best life that there is. There is... Think about it for a minute. Look at the way the children of disobedience live. Think about how many of us lived in the past. Think about all of the ill consequences of that, that you perhaps have experienced, that your family is experiencing, that you see all around you. And God is reminding us, this is the life. I've called you to the good life, the right life, the true life. It's amazing, isn't it, how many times we, and I include myself, how many times we, look at the world longingly. You know, I wish I could do that. The Bible refers to the pleasures of sin, does it not? But for how long? For a season. Let us remember, friends, the life that Jesus calls us to, the life that Jesus gives us, the life that is living in the light of Christ is the best life possible. Parents, do your children look at the Christian life that way? I see that life lived by my parents, and that's the life I want to live. Because it's the best life. There is nothing better. It's good, it's right, and it's true. Now, in order for those good things to be realized, holiness has its rewards now. But in order for that to happen, there of necessity must be a contrast between us and those who don't live that way. Notice chapter 5. And verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible, says verse 14. Now, it's kind of, kind of complicated. But in verse 14, when it says, For it is the light that makes everything visible. Excuse me, verse 13. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. It's the light that makes everything visible, verse 14. When it says that, now get this, literally, it says anything that expo is exposed by light becomes light. And you gave me confused looks, and that means you're listening. That's good. But it says literally anything exposed by light becomes light. So in verse 13, anything exposed to the light becomes visible. And in verse 14, literally anything exposed to the light becomes light. It becomes visible and it becomes light. What's that about? Well, a couple of things. 
Exposure to the light makes visible, exposes the works of darkness. And so our lives, we are being told, are to be contrasted with the lives of the sons and daughters of disobedience in such a way as by their very nature, by their very existence as light, they expose the darkness of the lives of those around us. It's one of the reasons people hate being around Christians. Now, sometimes they hate being around Christians because Christians act like jerks. But even if you don't act like a jerk, there's a convicting process to being around Christians. I heard a story of a professional golfer years ago who played a round of golf with Billy Graham. And after he was finished with his 18 holes, he went into the locker room and he threw his golf bag. And somebody said, what's wrong? And he said, I don't need Billy Graham or the Bible or God to tell me how to live my life. And the person said, well, what did he say? And the answer was nothing. But for 18 holes, this person was convicted. Just being around somebody who lived a different kind of life. It exposes, makes visible what is in darkness, but then in verse 14, exposure to the light causes what it exposes to become light. It's saying this, Christians who lead a righteous life restrain and reform evildoers and are even used by God to convert them. As our light shines, it makes visible, what it makes visible suddenly is light just as the Ephesians to whom Paul is writing, and by extension us, are light. So one commentator says this, it's possible, and after all, it's, it's happened to you who have come to the light, for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light. And so with that, Paul, who wrote this, has brought his argument about light and darkness to a fine climax. Exposure sounds negative, showing people up for what they are. It sounds judgmental and condemning. And it is that. But the light which exposes has, get this, positive evangelistic power. The light of one soul making another light. And it does so because it can bring people, as they see the ugliness of evil, to conviction of their sin, and so to repentant faith in Jesus. And so that's the twofold effect of the Christian's light. It makes visible and it makes light. That's why the Bible says this. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You all see the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline? Christians have the best reasons to live the best life. We're going to see two more reasons in the next couple of weeks. Next week and then January 8th because we'll have a Christmas message and a New Year's message in between. We're going to bow in just a moment. And as we bow again before the Lord, I encourage you to do as I do. Let's thank our God for His love and care for us such that He would give us these warnings, give us these commands, bring us back to the right path, and show us the, the glory of living in the light and the effect that that has not only on us, but on those around us. And those of you that have never come to Jesus Christ, if you didn't in the prayer we had earlier, I encourage you to do that now. Realize who you are, a sinner. Recognize what Christ has done. 
repent. That means commit to God. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your